0: Uh, bonjour mes amis, good morning, uh, this is Mark, and I'm coming to you live, I repeat live, from a beautiful little garden cafe right outside the public tennis courts at Jardin de Luxembourg in Paris, where I just uh, played a little bit of tennis with my cousin before I got kicked off the courts, but more on that later.
1: Hi, um, I'm. this is Philip, uh, I'm coming fr- to you live from Jardin de Luxembourg also, and I... Coincidentally, I also just got kicked off some tennis courts uh, with my cousin. What
0: are the odds of that? Uh, you know, come to think of when I, when, when I backtrack a little bit and I think about all the different public tennis courts I've been kicked off, on, kicked <laughs> off of, it's too many to remember. Starting growing up in Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, always played on the Dartmouth courts, and the pinheads would always kick us off, and we thought they were such snobs. And in retrospect, I realize that considering what one pays for college tuition and how often, how little they get in return, the least they could do is, is have uh, unfiltered access to the sporting facilities. But regardless, <laughs> it, it brings back some other slightly uh, uncomfortable memories of being kicked out of places that I really looked forward to being in for a while. And uh, Phil, are there, are there any experiences that come to mind of either athletic events or facilities or something like it where you just uh you know you you play you played the naive card a little bit and and it didn't quite play out the way you thought it would
1: yeah so uh one time when I was living in DC it sounded like there was a really fun party down the hall and uh then there were I saw two good-looking girls go in the door and so I'm just gonna I was My play was just to pretend I was invited and like go in and they kick me out, whatever. Well, the moment I walk in, they're just
0: like, who the hell are you? And uh, yeah, I didn't even get inside. Uh, pun intended. <laughs> um, this brings me back many years, actually, when I was in Munich for the first and only time. I'm not sure I, I'm even allowed back in. But we were unable to pay the... The door fee or whatever, the entry fee to get into a lot of the nice clubs. So somehow, through just our, our drunken staggering, we ended up at the Holiday Inn <inaudible> in <inaudible> Munich.
1: You have a verdure with us? aussi. D'accord. I Merci, monsieur. Please excuse the interruption, our drinks just arrived.
0: <laughs> anyway, we, uh, to make a long story short, we ended up at the Holiday inn and in in the bar area we realized we just didn't have a lot of money but we saw as we were entering the little restaurant bar we saw several people wearing u.s olympic biathlon jerseys at which point our at which point our drunken tendencies took over and we started ordering bottle of champagne after bottle of champagne after bottle of champagne telling them that we were part of the U.S. Olympic biathlon team and uh, charging it to the room, room number 412, and about this is when uh, Germany was using the marks. And I think about 300 marks later, they realized when they met the coach that we were not part of the team. And so rather than getting kicked out right the second before, we actually probably got booted out of the place. We rushed out and... Uh, we're never seen again. But yeah, Did you have to pay for no, we were living on the edge. No, because we got out of there. But um, we lived on the edge wow. and, uh, and, and probably f- permanently compromised our ability to travel with any uh, legal freedoms through Munich. <laughs> but speaking yeah. of people who don't have to worry about uh, paying any type of, or, or being able to afford the entry fee or expensive champagne mm-hmm. or anything of, of luxury. Uh, Wimbledon just finished, and I think two pretty wealthy, wealthy guys had uh, got some good money for their couple of hours on the tennis court, and so we're here. Uh, yeah, two
1: guys with over a hundred million dollars of prize money in their careers got even more.
0: So we're here to we're here to talk about the Wimbledon final, maybe a, a little bit of the build up to the Wimbledon final, uh, the the aftermath, and and maybe where we where we see the circuit going from here in the last last couple of months of the summer. So I guess I'll just start with you, Phil. Uh, did the results of Wimbledon live up first to your predictions, and then beyond your predictions, did they live up to your expectations? Maybe prior to the semifinals, and then and then certainly going into the final. How would how would you, you know, match the two predictions, expectations, and results?
1: result? Yeah. So I think they uh, their results were generally what I predicted with um, Rafa playing Federer. In the semifinals, and Federer winning a tight match in that one, and then uh, Djokovic winning in the finals against uh, Roger. Um, however, the matches themselves were, uh, I think, far more exciting than I had um, imagined, at least the finals were. Um, yeah, uh, I guess I'll we'll start with the semifinal match between Roger and Rafa. Um, I don't think, so Rafa was playing really well all tournament, and then he just, uh, he didn't play his worst, but he didn't play his best in the semis, and he was talking about that in the press conference, where he didn't feel like he reached his highest level, except for maybe in the second set for a little bit, but he also was like, okay, if you're playing well all tournament, and then you all of a sudden don't play well, I think it has something to do with the opponent, and so all credit to Roger. Uh, which was a very gracious thing to say. I was a little disappointed though that he he usually like finds his top level against the top guys and uh, just didn't have it um, in
0: Wimbledon. Do you think it's hard for a player like him who thrives on the big stage and also thrives on you know really sort of tight matches and pulling through the fact that he had a couple of I, I wouldn't say walkovers. But he wasn't really, after the second round, he went through a couple rounds where he just wasn't pushed. Do you think it's harder to find that extra gear, even though he's playing against somebody he's had you know, perhaps the greatest rivalry, rivalry with in the history of the sport? Is it hard to find the extra gear when you were not necessarily pushed so much in the previous matches? Or do you think it's, that's immaterial even if he played Roger in the first round, he could and maybe should be able to find his best level?
1: I think these guys would always prefer, like, an easy match to... Just because it, it all adds up, like, the miles on your legs and stuff. Like, the corollary is the U.S. Open last year where he had, like, four tough matches in a row and was just finally TKO'd in the Del Potro match. Um, so I guess it's better... I mean, query wasn't, like, a walkover. Rafa just made him look that way. Um, yeah, so his... The way he handled his draw before the fed match it, he he did everything he could it was just and then on the other hand there's Djokovic who basically didn't have a tough match until Bautista Agu and so he he was fresh until the semi-finals um yeah these guys would prefer easy matches I would say
0: one thing as a tennis fan, is it just some? Do you find yourself sometimes cheering against Bautista Agut just because it takes so long to say his name? It just feels like it doesn't roll off the tongue. And then, do you feel that tennis commentators might feel the same way? They breathe a sigh of relief, just like okay, they don't have to say you know Bautista Agut is really stepping up this match. Uh, uh,
1: so I was actually I was um, not sure if you would call it cheering against or cheering for, but I was cheering for Bautista Agut to be able to make his bachelor party which he had uh, planned for uh, the final weekend of Wimbledon which uh, really I guess shows that he uh, was not expecting to make this a lot of guys say oh I wasn't expecting to get this far but you know he's got proof.
0: Phil are you speaking from from experience (laughs) in any way shape or form there has there ever been a squash tournament or maybe just making plans with friends after a you know, kind of impromptu date. Has there ever been a time <laughs> where you, technically, the length of what you were you had committed to, was supposed to go a certain amount of time, but you made plans based on the projection of a loss? Uh, have you ever made Sunday plans at a non squash Sunday plans at a tournament where you were still alive <laughs> come the end of Saturday?
1: No, because uh, I was pretty sure my brother would get a round or two further than me and I was sort of stuck to the family schedule um, but yeah also I haven't played many squash tournaments in, since junior squash what about you have you have you made plans I
0: played one at the, at the U club a couple of years ago um, granted it was it was the 4.0 or 4.5 and I had booked a flight home to Miami at 7 in the morning on a Sunday entirely presuming that I would lose in the quarters of the semis before then um I tried to weasel my way out of it, but I didn't actually tell the tournament director that I wasn't going to be there on Sunday, so then I called Sunday morning and said I was really sick and if, I could, if it's any way possible that I could play the finals match the following weekend. Uh-huh. I wasn't going to a bachelor party, but in a way I really respect that Bautista Agu knew his limits. He knew that that weekend you know barring some major weather catastrophe should be free. so um, yeah, I think more players need to need to you know sort of proportionally rate uh their their probabilities better and and i probably i think that was a win-win situation he probably had more fun at his bachelor party than getting crushed by by roger on sunday
1: yeah and it was kind of funny because uh in his players box it was his future wife who was a babe and uh seven dude friends who were like clearly flown in from Ibiza,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, then,
1: and then immediately flown back. Yeah, yeah. But I mean he can afford that flight because uh he made an extra three hundred and twenty thousand dollars or something.
0: Um yeah. So, so before think, before we talk about the finals, are there are there any people who should have any players who you think should have, even if it wasn't made formal, should have made their formal auvoir uh to Wimbledon because they kind of missed their best and maybe last chance, at least to, to make it to the semis. Would you include Isner or other players like that where they're probably not gonna get another chance to to make it to the final weekend and, and they didn't take advantage? Uh, or, or even let's say the quarters are round to 16.
1: So I think uh, Songa might be like nearing the end. I mean, he was never gonna make the semis or anything, but he we expected like a tough match with Rafa in the third round, and it was one of the shortest matches in the tournament.
0: Did he have a bachelor party that that weekend or (laughs) or Not necessarily.
1: No, he didn't even have that excuse. Um, I'm sure he had a lot of parties, though. Um, Yeah, that's the one that jumped to mind
0: immediately. Did you have any that you were thinking about? I feel like probably Silich Anderson, and uh, Isner have now seen their best days at Wimbledon. I don't mm-hmm. think Anderson played poorly I think Pe- Pela you know made, tried to make good on his French home French promised to me at <laughs> Wimbledon but I think that isner and isner and and uh, still should still should be con- concerned because that's their best surface yeah. neither of them really had a very good grass court season so you know they may need some extra stocking stuffers uh, because eventually the, the young guys will, will pick up their game on 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 grass or should do you think uh, since the past, I feel like it's had a good year. He you know, had a bad tournament. Uh, should Zverev and team be be you know his team kind of a one tournament wonder as far as as far as the Grand Slams go? I know that we spoke about this a little bit last week, but should their camps be concerned at all, or just say hey, you know, bad day at the wrong time, and uh, and we'll get this turned around on the hard courts.
1: Yeah, so I'll start with Sveriv. Uh I think he should just be worried in general that he's never gotten past the quarterfinals in a major, and he's only gotten to the quarterfinals once ever in a major. Um, I just don't understand it, um, because, like, okay, we all know he's worse than the big three, but he's, his ranking is high enough that he's not losing to the big three in these tournaments. He's losing to, like, randos. Um, I mean, I forget who he lost to at Wimbledon. Um Millman, probably. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Maybe like char- some somebody <laughs>
0: in, the, in, the, in the outside the top fifty.
1: Yeah, and so whatever's going on with him, like uh, it's been going on for too long. The guy's like twenty two or twenty three now. I think twenty two, um, and he's been around like in the top ten since he was nineteen. Um, yeah, I don't know what's up. And then team, uh, he so there are a couple things about team. Uh, So he's not He he doesn't just perform well at the French Open Because he had a good US Open last year That match against Rafa was like Mm -hmm. I think the ATP Tour Ranked it the best match of the season And that was in the quarterfinals Um, However He is just incredibly inconsistent I think you can count on him to show up For the French Open But other than that You just don't know what tournament you're going to get Like The team that can like push Djokovic and Rafa to the limit or the team that loses in the first round and uh I guess Indian Wells we had the team that pushed Djokovic to the limit and Wimbledon we had uh (laughs) the one that loses in the first round and uh so a little in all fairness to him okay he was playing like crap but he also drew like a tough first round opponent in Sam Querrey uh Mark, you actually called that upset. I mean, query is an ex-Wimbledon yeah, yeah, semifinalist and made the quarters this year. Um, and so it's like, in a box that's not a terrible person to lose to, it's just it, It's tough to lose first round for a guy who has as high expectations as he does.
0: Yeah, I mean, Wimbledon is like that one mirror in the house that just makes us look infinitely better than the rest of the mirrors. <laughs> and I think Wimbledon is that tournament for... For five to ten players, uh, you know, Isner and and Query being two very good examples of it, Feliciano Lopez, even Sanga in the past, where usually they take it a round or two further, if not three rounds, than they would in the other majors. So, yeah, he probably isn't too worried, but I think there should always be concern about the inconsistency because the gold standards by age 20, 21, 22, were not taking two grand slams off a year, you yeah. know, they might have. Uh, and I, I don't even think it applied to Nadal and Federer at all But maybe Djokovic you know, Or even Wawrinka and Murray Would have one of the Grand Slams Where they would lose in the third round But probably in the other three They were making at least the quarters If not the semis yeah. and, 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 and not that their talent level at that age Was so much higher than Zverev Or Team, or Chorich or Goffin even, or Kyrios. It's just that they were bringing it in every tournament. There were there were few, there were many fewer lapses during the course of the year, and and you're seeing it in their thirties. They're not having lapses. I mean, I was I was calculating like the Grand Slam record of the Big Three since the beginning of 2018, and I think that Rafa's something like 38 and four, 38 and five. Yeah. Djokovic is like 39 and three. Federer is something around 30 and 30 and four, and those are. Those are records you'd expect from from players in their mid twenties at the peak of their career, but but not with such good young competition when they're in their early to mid thirties already.
1: Yeah, uh, well said. Um, and I guess uh, speaking of thirty year olds, uh, there's a we've talked about the other parts of Wimbledon, but the main event is something we haven't really discussed yet in the final between Roger and Novak. Um, I guess uh, one question I have about that match is where does it rank among the pantheon of tennis matches, like, at least in history or I've ever seen? Um, And I guess my answer to that is it's a close second behind the 2008 final. Um, Yeah, uh, there's a website that actually ranks, like, best matches based on a whole bunch of metrics and they get into data and stuff and it agrees with me that uh, this was the second best match ever Uh, and I think what makes a great tennis match is just um, not knowing, first of all, not knowing what the outcome, like not really just being totally 50 50 on like what the outcome will be like at every point in the match Um, and This match definitely had that, like, uh, Federer was outplaying Djokovic the entire first set, but it went to a tiebreak and Djokovic eked it out, and so, and then Federer uh, crushes him in the second set, and so it's one-all, and by the time the third set rolls around, you still don't know who's going to win, or Federer's outplaying Djokovic, but Djokovic is playing the big points well. Uh, and that pattern held in the third set where Djokovic won in a tiebreak again, uh, all of a sudden, like, it seemed stacked against Fed, but he had, like, a 13-point margin of, like, total won by that time. Uh, and so it's just... He was the better player, except he was down. Um, the friends who I was chatting with during that match, we were all just like, wow, Federer should have won this match in three sets. Uh, and then Federer wins the fourth. Uh, it goes to a tie break. Um, er, it doesn't go to a tie break, but uh, it, all of a sudden it's uh, two all and we still don't know who's going to win. Um, and then in the fifth set, there are no breaks of serve. It climbs to 6-all, 7-all, uh, and then Federer breaks at 8-7, and we're just like, okay. Game set enough. Yeah, his serve has been almost untouchable. Uh, he gets to 40-15, fi- and uh, all right, he's one ace away, one on your turn serve away, and Djokovic finds the magic for two points and ends up breaking him, which might be the first time in, like, finals history where a person who, uh, has a break in, like, uh, the extra games of a closing set, uh, got broken when he was serving for the match, um, at least in the Rafa-Roger-Novak era, I can't remember, um, and then, uh, yeah, Novak ends up winning in another tiebreak, 13-12, um, but he saved a few more break points at 11 all on his serve. Um it was never a sure thing even until the final moments. Like you had a feeling Djokovic would win when he pulled up to like 5-1 in the in the final set tiebreaker, but it was uh it was never a sure thing until the match was over. And uh one thing I really respected was uh he didn't even celebrate. He uh the match ended and he just walked to the net usually when you win a grand slam you fall to the floor and are like crying crying or something uh novak just uh gave like a minor fist pump like sort of laughed and uh walked to the net and shook roger's hand and uh was a total champ uh i mean he's been there before but he really acted (laughs) like he'd been he'd been there before uh I think he respected the level of tennis and, like, the stakes of the match and just, like, how hard both guys worked more than, like, indulging in his celebration.
0: Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think the whole thing was very Wimbledon-esque. It's yeah. hard for me, you know, I can't really comment on the ma- too much on the matches, let's say, before 1985. I'm sure there were some Borg McEnroe matches, uh, probably some great clay court matches with the great clay quarters from South America and Europe. So it is hard to compare. I know that within you know, this millennium, those have to be the two most significant matches. Probably, I didn't see the match. I really would just follow it from your comments on the chat. My, If I had to categorize, I would say that was probably the best set maybe yeah. ever played. The fifth set, certainly the best deciding set ever played. But maybe the match as a whole, uh, hard, hard to know. Wimbledon, I don't even, you know, because of the way Wimbledon's played, sometimes it's hard to see Wimbledon a Wimbledon match as the best tennis possible because of all of the quick points, but the fact that they do play long points on a surface in which they shouldn't be playing long points adds to the legitimacy of of the match's greatness. The stakes were high, the unpredictability, just following in on the chat, the amount of times that that you guys would write off one player or the other and rightfully say, okay, the match is over now. Actually, I do think that um, Djokovic was up a break in the fifth. He was up 4-2. Yeah, yeah. And then Fed broke back. So it's just the amount of times where Fed, you know, nearly 38, dug himself out. Psychologically, he should have been fairly down after losing another tiebreaker in the third set and always found a way to pick himself up. Picked himself up again, even just to hold serve three or four more times after, you know, not being able to hold at 8-7. So there I think the stakes... There would have been something
1: yeah. poetic about Djokovic losing a match where he was <laughs> up... Uh, in the 5th that's actually like a pretty um, symbolic scoreline for this big 3 era Uh, Nadal was up against Djokovic 4-2 in the 5th in Australia I think in 2012 or 2013 and Djokovic came back that uh, 30-15 backhand in the net is always going to haunt Rafa and then Rafa was up 4-2 in the 5th against Federer again in Australia in 2017 and Federer came back um, so maybe it's just Rafa who's cursed by that <laughs> scoreline, but uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah that was another point of the match where it's like okay, we think Djokovic is going to win, and then Federer breaks him, and then we think Federer is going to win, and uh, yeah, it's just like like the, uh, there's like a shift in in who's favored, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think I think what both players did again. I can't comment. Too much on the specifics, but they—I think again, just like with Rafa and Fed, a decade ago they upped the ante for the sport. Yeah. I think they're—they're showing that you know they are just not surrendering, particularly on the on in 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 the highest stakes that you're going to get their A game no matter what. And I think that psychologically, it's got to put a dent in the rest of the comp. I think the rest of the the competition right now at this point in time. Knows that at best they're playing for second place. I think that perhaps some of the early round losses by players ranked somewhere between five and fifteen is almost subconsciously dictated by the fact that they know they can't win the tournament. And then I think, and then I could be way off here. Come the Masters one thousands when they're playing these guys two when they're playing the big three two out of three, maybe one of those three or two of the three are really. Didn't really see winning the tournament as as important as just getting some match play in. I think they really feel like they they have a chance to win. And I I I think if you know if we took some truth serum of of everybody outside of the top three that deep down they don't believe they can win a Grand Slam right now, bar, barring some fluke or an injury or what have you. Stan probably believes he can win. Delpo if he gets hot, but I would say outside of those two, I don't think any of them do And I think it does. I think it impact. I don't know if it impacts their preparation, but I feel like they lose a little bit of the eye of the tiger as a result. And uh, you know, the fact that we'll get to see uh, probably two of the big three in the in the finals of Wimbledon next year, and and Australia, and you know, the U.S. Open. I, I've become a little less interested in over the years. I think I burn out a little bit as a tennis fan uh, come the end of Wimbledon, but. But it's I, th- also I think they're burned out yeah. physically. yeah, yeah. It's so yeah hot. It's true it's true, <laughs> but I think those guys are here to stay i I, I think that uh, don't be surprised to see the same two in the finals of Wimbledon next year or, so- or something similar and and I think it's great that I think both of them can walk away if even if Fed had won that tiebreaker, both of them can walk away saying i like like Phil was talking about. You know, I pulled out a near victory out out of the jaws of defeat because they, they both had reasons to think that the match was over and and put themselves in, in a tiebreaker in the fifth set to win. Uh, and so, you know, kudos to both of them, which probably explains Djokovic's uh, his very anticlimactic celebration.
1: Yeah, I think uh, one, one question you asked, I think, around the quarterfinals was, uh, is it good or bad for the sport that these guys are virtual certainties to, like, make... The semis and then play each other in the finals. And uh, my answer was it makes the rounds until the semis less interesting, but it's uh, more exciting tennis in the final uh, rounds, which I agree with. I think it was good for tennis to have Federer and Djokovic playing in the finals and have that high quality of a match uh, on that stage. Um, like, I think. I was on Twitter during that time, and I can only imagine non-tennis people were were commenting on the match. Like I, there was one, ringer writer, Paulo Getty, who was saying, "Wow, the thing about tennis is it might be the best sport." And he's like a basketball writer. Bill Simmons was just like, "This is incredible. This is one of the greatest sporting events I've ever seen." He's a basketball guy. Uh, matches like this uh, bring new fans to the sport. Um, and I think tennis is really going to miss these guys. There's going to be a dark ages when these guys are gone. The same way there was like a mini dark ages when, um, Agassi and Sampras lost their sort of like dominance. And
0: I guess the Hewitt won the Carlos Ferrero yeah. Safin, uh, yeah.
1: a little time. I think the, uh, the one that really epitomizes it is when Marcelo Rios got the number one ranking. That was, I think that might've been <laughs> the nadir of, uh, Top quality tennis. Uh, but I mean, from. Moya, Moya from, had the number one ranking as well. From the ashes, a Phoenix arises usually. Uh, like Federer arose from those ashes. LeBron arose from the post Jordan
0: um, ashes. Um, yeah, when the NBA wasn't quite ready to make Tim Duncan its, uh, you know, <laughs> it's poster child. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there was
1: Duncan and Kobe who are sort of like Hewitts and. Uh, Juan Carlos Ferreros um, but then there was LeBron
0: who was a rightful heir um, there's no heir right now and I, I don't know if, if these guys have even allowed for one they have just killed more they've killed more Grand Slam fantasies you know, than probably uh, Junior Tennis has I mean just you know and I, I laugh I, I have to laugh when you hear yeah. I'm not talking about the Felixes of the world I'm talking about the Choriches. and yeah got fans and ryan Harrisons and Taylor Fritz <laughs> when they say that their goal is to become number one in the world and i 'm like dude, you are in, you need to re, you need to redefine your goal. Your goal yeah. should be to make, to the make quarters. The quarters of a grand slam because <laughs> that's as far as you're going to get. Your, your goal not, should be to have to cancel your bachelor party yeah. on the. Final your week. goal should be kind of like <laughs> you know uh, Venus Williams and she wasn't able to achieve her goal of being the best player in the family. She was not. She's not not the best player on the floor of the family's house. You know, it's just you got to set realistic goals. To say I want to become the best, you know, American tennis player whose last name starts with F. <laughs> and that, that's as good. That's going to be as good as it gets, because yeah. because none of these guys team might, but as far as I mean, Chorich uh, and Goffan there and Curious future Grand Slam t- title
1: winners uh, in playing currently, um, and I also think. So I think Felix will have, like, a period of dominance. I think Tsitsipas will. Medvedev. And I think uh, Team will as well. Uh, or at least, I don't know if he'll have a period of dominance, but I think he'll win multiple Grand Slams. So those are the three. Um, and if Sverev ever figures it out, he might as well. Maybe Medvedev but, or, or Yeah, catch, Medvedev, yeah, yeah or, or some of the Russians. But uh, I think other than Felix and Tsitsipas, who are still 20 and 18 uh everyone else they're sort of too old to turn into a legend at this point
0: um yeah if you haven't really really turned a corner by 22 or 23 i think you've
1: yeah you lost your chance so federer was kind of he was 22 when he won his first grand slam which is a little bit on the old side but younger than pretty much all these guys uh felix is 18 Uh, like rafa was plenty of time like had just turned nineteen when he won his first french open uh Novak I think just turned twenty one when he won his first australian open um, so it's just like uh yeah, if you
0: but they were knocking on the door already guys, you know they yeah. were i mean Joker had probably made the finals of the open and other things, and these guys are just they're not knocking very loud well, one one advantage these guys have though is
1: that. At least, if one of them like really steps up his game, uh, there don't seem to be the other parts of the big three. So they could, re- if one of these guys gets to that level, he could
0: really just mm. knock out five years of Grand Slams. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Grand Slams, uh, you know we have the U.S. Open. Now, any Any final thoughts? Do you think Do you think Federer, you know, result notwithstanding, walks away from Wimbledon? You know, we know where Federer was at the end of the Australian Open, which was not where he wanted to be. Lost a tight match, but probably left left some, you know, left the match on the court, sort of, uh, you know, didn't take advantage of some opportunities. Had a very good showing at the French, an excellent showing at Wimbledon. Do you think he's feeling good about his game right now? Do you feel like it's given him a little more, you know, motivation maybe to try to get another two years of Tennyson? Yeah, I think he
1: definitely wants to be back and, like, the fact that he knows he has this level in him still it gives him confidence but um I think the the sentiments for him are probably more bitter than sweet um just because this might have you never know like uh, Duncan Tim Duncan uh he was playing incredibly well at age 38 and then when age 39 uh Happened. There was no injury or anything, but his just level of play dipped like uh, precipitously and noticeably. Um, the decline happened.
0: Nowitzki, other, others fast. like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. Uh, and so you just never know. And uh, I think getting 21, if Novak was still at 15, uh, I think it would have put him over the top. Like yeah. nobody was going to beat that but with Novak now at 16, Narafa at 18, and and Roger still at 20, like, uh, his record is probably going to get broken unless he wins another one. Um,
0: what I would actually He'll probably still have the total, uh, the highest number, I would assume, of at least reaching the Grand Slam finals. I mean, he must be somewhere, somewhere at 35 right now, maybe 33, you know, and, and which is incredible. Obviously the longevity, uh, you know, making the finals of the Wimbledon sixteen years apart because I think he won his first one in two thousand three, and in two thousand nineteen, probably the quality of his play was as good, if not better, than when he won it the first time. So you know, props yeah. to him there. And and do you do you like this try? Do you think that his uh, you know, I'm going to try to get some some uh, core time in on the clay. As a way of kind of a means to an end of of making me a little bit more match fit at Wimbledon. Do you like the call? Do you think yeah, Federer I should, think should stick, right with, stick with it maybe for another
1: year at least? So there were a few reasons why that was the right move. One was that he made the freaking semifinals of uh, the French Open. <laughs> and who knows what would have happened if like weather conditions weren't as erratic on that semifinals day. I mean, Rafa is uh, the best on clay and Federer probably would not have beaten Rafa. But, like, it was also just sort of unlucky that he was in Rafa's half of the draw. Um, and speaking of draws, like, if he hadn't played uh, clay court season, he would not have been the two-seed at Wimbledon. He would have been the three-seed. And so he might have had to play Djokovic in the semis instead or, of... The-
0: or might have lost to Kyrgios in the second round if, Kyrgios, if he ended up in Rafa's part. And yeah. Kyrgios was in, you know, maybe Roger had a little less, you know... Uh, but if you're the three
1: seed, it means you're automatically going to have to play uh, two, your two biggest opponents, like in the semis and finals, whereas if you're either the one or the two seed, it gives you a 50% likelihood that you won't have to play the other members of the big three until the yeah. finals, and so it's just... Better to be a top two seed than the third seed.
0: Um, so good, good for his ranking. Good, good for his game. Yeah, and, and a smart ploy.
1: Yeah, like if Rafa, so if Rafa was the two seed and Federer were in Djokovic's half, then he would have made the he would have walked into the finals, and only had to play one of those guys to potentially win it. Totally different ballgame. Yeah, there. yeah. And um, so mm-hmm. Federer didn't get lucky with the draw. He had to play Rafa in the semis, but he. He, he gave himself a chance, you know, um, by being the two seed. It's hard to think even think about the hard
0: courts right now, but let's because, just... Because Newport is going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true true, <laughs> true, 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 true. And that, that's another topic for another pod, how the grass court season continues after they've just played the most prestigious grass, tourn- grass court tournament uh, on the circuit, perhaps the most prestigious tournament, period. But uh, you know <laughs> yeah, Newport, we got we got man. we got Atlanta, DC. Let's R- just Rajiv Ram, dude. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> got Rajiv Rammed. Um, any, anybody you'd like to see a little bit, just more tennis from over over. Let's say in the Atlanta. We'll, we'll wait for Montreal until Montreal starts. But
1: so between
0: Atlanta, and DC. Anybody you just want to sort of you know just see out there making it deeper into the tournament, just so you can kind of they can kind of showcase their skills. So one guy for the I'm general public the,
1: uh, is is still alive in Newport in, in the semifinals is Hugo Umbert. because uh, he really showed me something at Wimbledon. I'm like a believer, and it's nice to have that belief confirmed a little bit. At least on the grass, he's a good player. Um,
0: what about you? As you're speaking, I'm checking out to see who's in the finals in Newport, which is today. So, it is John Isner against Alexander Bublik. So, uh, but. Uh, umber lost to Isner in three close sets tie breaks uh two tie breaks and then Isner t- took the third set six three uh. a little surprising uh yeah I'm, I'm um, that Granoliers, Granoliers, granola made the semis and lost to Bublik. so should be a pretty good match today uh, that was nice I I, I'm ha- I I you know and I just want to see more of the young French contingent in general yeah I think that was is
1: good too yeah
0: I, th- I think uh, I think that they're having a, a nouvelle vague. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, you have, of course, you have uh, Charty and Songa kind of representing the, the early to mid 30s, uh, Puy and, and Monfils and Gasquet, I guess, in their late 20s. Uh, are, are hanging in there, but there's a good, good young group of French players. I need, I need. To, this is where you actually really do get to see the future. Yeah. So I probably should pay a little bit more attention because there probably are, you know, quite a few from Eastern Europe, yeah. who uh, like the Medvedevs of the world. When they would beat players like Stan at yeah. the U.S. Open a couple of years ago, you would say, "Oh God, you know, why the heck is Medvedev winning?" Yeah. And then you realize, "Oh, this person has a lot of games Same, same thing with Kachanov. You know, it's no fluke that this guy is. Uh, so I, I, I want to see more of those guys. They really. Uh, both the guys like ranked in that in the sort of thirty to forty range. I'd also like to see T. I want to see if, if, you know, if if we I'm gonna if I'm gonna be buying or selling Tiafo. I yeah. think he's had a lopsided year, um, and he's generally had lopsided results. And I I think that these next two or three weeks are big, big. Fritz a little less so, but Tiafo needs to. I think he got into the top 35, and he, I think he needs to get get to a quarters or semis to show that he belongs there. I think yeah. as he's in an important I stage of his career. He's not in the
1: top 40 anymore, and that includes an Australian Open quarterfinal, like, points. Like, So it
0: just shows that he's really had a crap season since the Australian Open. I mean, the U.S. pretty much tanked on clay. We were not looking good on grass until Eastbourne picked it up there. You know, this is our chance, so it's it's important. I think it's important for the U.S. contingent, probably important for the young French contingent, and and I'll actually pay a little more attention for that reason because because it is unpredictable. Like we'll see some names that you don't expect to see there. So at least I'll give the D.C. tournament some some looks. And uh, and how would you assess Felix's play? In in general, he lost to who? He lost
1: to uh, Ugo Umbert. Okay, which so is like no, so we I realize was, it's no no slouch. Yeah, which is why I was uh, high on Umbert, because he played really. It, Felix was not playing his best, but he wasn't playing poorly. Like he didn't lose the match. It was just that guy. Like he had he had legit game, um,
0: and so yeah. So, Phil, if you, if you don't mind, I don't mind if we can bring this conversation full circle. I'm wondering, you know, when we, when we get sort of kicked off a of court, we play that game of put the shoe on the other foot. Uh-huh. We're sitting at a table right now here in the Jardin, and nobody's interested in kicking us off this table. Yeah. They probably wouldn't even bring us the check unless we tackled them for it. <laughs> if the shoe's on the other foot and you're you're the proprietor of something, um, which card do you play? Do you play the, you know, they get. The, Get off of my property card. Uh, how do you think you handle situations where somebody's encroaching on your turf?
1: Loitering. Uh, so I actually have a good story about this. Uh, my favorite coffee shop in Paris. This place, Partisan, um, in the Third Arrondissement. You should go to it. Um, the guy who who runs it, this Lebanese guy, uh, he. Uh, he really takes pride in his coffee roastery. Um, it, it doesn't bother him if somebody works on a computer, but if people like bring their computers and stay all day at the coffee shop and make it so that people who are there for coffee can't sit down. Uh, he, uh, he basically he, he didn't know what to do about that. And so what he did was he said maxim, he made a rule and made sure everybody knew the rule maximum one hour on your computer so you can still bring your computer but you can only spend an hour on it
0: what if you're buying more food then it's okay no not even he he doesn't he he cares less
1: about the money than he does about like just being because it's not it's a it's not a venture as much as it is like a labor of love for him like he made his money in other ways and so he just wants his like coffee roastery to be a place that's primarily for coffee and that's number one for kind
0: of digging this i'm kind of digging his attitude yeah yeah yeah. so you could you are you buying or selling his approach i think that's a great
1: approach because okay if you know from the beginning that you have maximum one hour on this uh on your computer at this place you can stay longer than an hour if you're like reading a book or something but it's just like he doesn't want to be seen as a co-working space um and so, yeah, I think if you're a proprietor, you need to set the boundaries pretty clear. And I mean, the boundaries are pretty set at like the Jardin Luxembourg tennis courts. It's just <laughs> we tried to sneak on and got caught.
0: Yeah, <laughs> more props to us. I yeah. think uh, I, I we were
1: seat chasing. My
0: my only regret is that we we didn't try it again. But uh, yeah, you know we'll uh, speak on which. Any final words? Um, uh, we're at a nice mathematical progression with the Grand Slam: sixteen, eighteen, twenty. If they get you think uh, um, uh, you think that's it? You think those those three are locked in? They're going to cap it out at fifty four? <laughs> not I think, even close. I think it'll be uh, twenty eighteen seventeen at the end of uh, summer. <laughs> <laughs> and still climbing, yeah. and still climbing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you guys can read between the lines. Well, uh, it's been a, a, a privilege, you know, speaking with you all from Jardin de Luxembourg. We'll we'll keep you posted on our. Our on and off court adventures in, in the next pod. And follow
1: us on Twitter um, at Doubles Alley Pod. And uh, subscribe to our uh, iTunes channel if, uh, if you like what you're hearing. Give us five stars. Um, anyway, to our millions of listeners, thanks a
0: lot. And until next time. Uh